Welcome to another episode of The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Deputy Editor Micah Utrecht. This week I am talking to Jacobin's Europe Editor, David Broder, who has a new book out called First They Took Rome, How the Populist Right Conquered Italy. And I can't promise you that it is a particularly uplifting read, as you will hear in my conversation with David. The state of Italian politics is pretty bleak, and it reflects the state of politics of many countries around Europe and around the world. Uh, But it is an excellent overview of what has gone on in Europe over the last uh, three or four decades Uh, and how it's come to a situation in which the populist right has dominated the country's politics. Uh, The left has been totally neoliberalized, uh, despite the fact that the country had the uh, largest communist party in Europe, Uh, and all kinds of things that are very familiar to those of us in the United States, like uh, rising xenophobia in Italian politics, a uh, real immiseration of uh, the economy, particularly for young Italians. Uh, there's just a lot in there uh, that is uh, very similar to situations faced here in the U.S. and uh, around the world. And so Italy is a real uh, vision of our future, or at least uh, some a vision of a worst-case scenario uh, future for American politics and for, for politics around the world. Also, just a technical note on this episode, if you had to think of the worst possible thing that could happen in the middle of you recording a podcast, you would probably uh, say a uh, severe jackhammering happening directly outside of your window of your apartment, and uh, that's exactly what happened in this episode, so uh, sorry if you hear any jackhammering uh, when I am speaking to uh, David. You can blame it on my socialist alderman, Carlos Rosa, here in Chicago, who uh, ordered the repaving of my street, uh, which is generally an extremely good thing, uh, but it does involve some jackhammering, which uh, made it for a little bit difficult podcast recording. So uh, thanks, Carlos. Uh, all right, here's my conversation with David Broder. David, hello. Hello, Micah. Uh, so congrats on the new book. Let's just start at the the broadest level possible. Give us a, a short summary of where Italy is at today. Italy, its government is currently a, a very broad coalition um, made up of parties that have until very recently been very hostile to each other. So the current, current government is a coalition of the Five Star Movement, which is an eclectic populist party that claims to be neither left nor right, uh, which historically has been quite Eurosceptic. Um, it was created in 2009, uh, so a very young party, um, and which very suddenly surged to become the biggest party nationally. Um, so got a third of the vote in the elections in 2018, which is the last general election. Um, but while that party arose as a, a sort of populist, anti-political party, probably mainly directing its polemical fire against the against the centre left, um, it's actually now in government with the main centre left party, which is called the Democrats, 
and which is mainly made up of heirs to the old communist and Christian Democrat parties. The Prime Minister is Giuseppe Conte, who is an independent law professor who has very little uh, profile of his own or has only recently acquired it. Uh, to illustrate that, like before he became Prime Minister uh, in June 2018, he didn't even have a, a Wikipedia page about him because he had like no public notoriety whatsoever. He's not like a member of parliament or anything. Uh, and he was chosen precisely because he was a weak figure without a base. Um, but what's kind of odd is that he has led two governments with opposites, uh, based on opposite coalitions. So the first government, June 2018 to August 2019, was uh, the Five Star Movement, which I mentioned, uh, together with the Lega, which is a far right party, uh, and then in August last year, the Lega left the coalition and was replaced by the centre-left. So when we talk about Italian politics, the like uh, party names and coalitions are extremely volatile and can seem kind of bewildering. And, you know, none of the parties has uh, existed for more than a few decades. In fact, the, the Lega, uh, Matteo Salvini's party, which is a far-right party, uh, was created in uh, 1991, and that's actually the oldest party in the Italian parliament. Uh, and it's very common for uh, Italian parties to change their names or even change their political identity in the span of just a few years. However, underneath all this kind of noise and colour, um, what we have had develop over the last three decades, uh, and starting in the early 1990s, uh, is an enduring and persistent shift of the political spectrum to the right, in which former communists have become neoliberal centrists, and in which uh, the the what's called the centre right has over time been um, taken over by increasingly uh, radicalised right wing forces, ever more polarising politics uh, on themes of identity and immigration to the expense of all else. Uh, so while some people would say, well, you know, Italy has always had a strong far right and always been home to disasters, uh, you know, like, not only has the far right emerged there strongly recently, but Berlusconi 25 years ago, Silvio Berlusconi often compared to Trump, uh, also because he's a billionaire media magnate and this kind of thing. And also, of course, because historically fascism first emerged in Italy. So there's a certain idea uh, of Italy as a sort of naturally uh, conservative or uh, country always open to far-right demagogues. Uh, but this is also the country which only 30 years ago had the biggest communist party in the West. Uh, in fact, the, the Italian Communist Party was the biggest after the Russian and Chinese parties uh, in power. Um, so while it was always in opposition, um, from the 1940s until the start of the 1990s, it continually had like between 1.5 and 2.3 million members, you know, in a country of like, let's say, schematically, like about 50 million people, uh, and which was the main opposition party and which built a very impressive life around it um, in terms of things like um, cooperatives and workers clubs, setting up trade unions, uh, being a party very rooted in everyday working class life and which had a kind of social power, even though it wasn't in national government. And with the disappearance of that party in 1991, 
uh, we've seen, uh, firstly, a, a dramatic fall in working class political participation, uh, and also a, a sort of wider hollowing out of the idea of like political alternatives and uh, the state being able to make you know, serious uh, like interventions to to improve uh, Italians' lives. What are you describing happening in Italy, uh, both in terms of the left and the right, is happening all around the world, which we can get to in a second. But uh, before we do that, just talk a little bit about uh, the state of uh, the Italian uh, economy and, and society outside of the political parties. What is life like for average Italians in terms of their uh, living standards and whatnot. I mean, uh, you wrote the book before coronavirus, and it would be good to hear about what Italy looked like before coronavirus, but then also uh, how has, I mean, we, we all know that uh, Italy was a real global epicenter of the coronavirus when it first began. So uh, how has that played into and, and uh, or like zeroed in on already existing uh, weaknesses and inequalities and, and the, the general uh, dismal state of uh, the Italian economy and society? So I, I think actually the, the, the coronavirus is an interesting angle in the sense that Italy was the first country except China where the number of cases uh, or rather sorry, the number of, of deaths um, went into the thousands. Uh, and it was the first big outbreak in, in Europe. And because that happened, there was a lot of, uh, in other European countries, there was a, a certain attempt to kind of explain why Italy had been hardest hit in terms of some particular kind of cultural traits of Italians or something about Italy which made it particularly vulnerable. Uh, so this was a kind of mix of... Um, you know, stuff like Italians like kissing each other on the cheeks and like embracing each other. So therefore, they're uh, spreading the virus. Uh, but also it was kind of like, well, Italy is kind of like a mess and kind of all a bit crappy and badly organized and everyone's careless and lazy. Um, so, you know, we had like um, when when the numbers in Britain were were accelerating at the same rate as in Italy, but like, as it were, a week or two sort of further, not so far along the curve. Uh, Boris Johnson and various media outriders were very keen to insist that there was no chance that Britain would end up in a, in a condition like Italy's, uh, basically because we're more sensible and serious. Whereas in fact, in the end, the British uh, number of people who died at least was, was even worse. Um, and it's not just for this crisis, like if we think of the uh, 2008 like global economic crisis and its fallout um, and the kind of austerity measures which were uh, imposed on Italy, uh, especially by European authorities, uh, lots of leaders in other countries said, well, um, Italians are... Um, you know, they're having to tighten their belts, they're having to spend less, because after all, we all know that like Italians like to have a good time, and they don't really like to work too hard, and they'd rather like party or go to the beach, uh, and this kind of thing. Within Italy itself, this this same uh, kind of language is, is used by uh, uh, liberal centrist politicians who say, well, we need to be like a serious European country, normal and modern, so as against all the corrupt, free spending public sector, 
uh, we need to tighten our belts to spend less. We need to get rid of all this red tape, all this bureaucratic procedure that allows workers, uh, you know, basically workers don't have to work very hard to keep their jobs. All of this kind of language has been going on for like 30 years in Italy. There's been this constant, uh, and you know, I describe in the book, basically since the beginning of the 1990s uh, and connected to Italy's uh, integration into the European Union, there's been this endless war on bureaucracy, high public spending. Um, in fact, uh, the Italian state has run budget, uh, primary budget surpluses, i.e. it spends less than it takes in in uh, taxation for like 20 years. The idea is to like heal the public accounts and so on. But what this kind of uh, rhetoric basically covers up for and provides legitimation to is a very harsh and continuous attack on um, working class living standards uh, and a destruction of uh, any kind of possibility of economic growth. Um, so just in the last um, 30 years, the top 10% of uh, Italian society uh, has gone from con uh, controlling 30% of income to 50% of income. Uh, whereas the bottom 50% of Italian society have 10% of total income. Um, and this is reflected in things like the fact that uh, about one in three uh, Italians under the age of, um, so between the ages of 24 and 35, about one in three are neither in employment, education or training, which means that they're not only not working, uh, but they're not like doing anything through which they could get work. Uh, there's also uh, another striking example, I think, is about two thirds of Italians uh, between ages uh, 18 and 34 live with their parents. Um, so it's become very common, even if you're in your 30s, perhaps even if you're, <laughs> you're married or have a partner or even if you have kids, to live with your parents and people might think well that's just like how Italians are because you know all the generations live in the same house but actually the living with the parents thing has dramatically increased just in the last 20 years the reason why people live with their parents isn't just because they really love their parents it's because they can't afford to to move out because there's not jobs there's not welfare provision uh, even if they do get work, um, most uh, newly created jobs are on um, short-term, fixed-term contracts. Um, so basically, um, the, the upshot of all of this is that Italy, uh, despite being um, one, historically one of the, the richest countries in the European Union, has basically had 20 years of zero economic growth. So even before the coronavirus crisis, um, Italy uh, had lower GDP in 2019 than in 1999. Um, there's been a 40% fall in public investment, uh, collapsing spending on healthcare, education. But even if like the overall GDP hasn't increased, that's basically fine for the Italian ruling class because their proportion of the overall wealth has increased so fast and at the expense of the social majority that basically they're still getting richer 
uh, and basically they're enriching themselves and telling the majority of the population uh, that the reason why they're badly off is that they're too lazy, that they expect too many rights. What Italians call the centre-left is led by people who used to be communists, then made a decision to convert themselves into liberals, and in so doing, assumed a kind of very aggressively anti-communist and anti-left posture that might even be quite rare for someone who is a kind of sincere liberal, because it's like they're trying to show that they're like, we want to be credible on the economy and the public accounts. We want to show that we're not like beholden to unions or that we're, we're not um, sentimental about, you know, the conditions of like low paid workers and so on. Uh, even aside from the like electoral disasters this has produced from the, the centre left, it also has a quite strange effect on the on the political terrain because basically one of the characteristics of all of the centre left governments that have uh, existed in the last uh, twenty five years is they've always prominently included figures who were not uh, like you know bank uh, former bank officials and uh, advisors to investment banks and so on, like technocrats, but also people drawn directly from the world of finance who are meant to serve as some sort of guarantee to a, to like the imagined like middle-class voter drawn from the centre-right. Basically, they're meant to stand in for like, you know, we are responsible and credible and really meaning uh, sort of not, uh, not going to be a free-spending leftist. Um, and a lot of these figures, um, this one I mentioned, uh, Tommaso Padua Schioppa, um, who was a former European uh, Commission um, official who, who was one of the architects of the, of the Euro and then uh, was a uh, minister in the, in the Italian government of the late 90s. Uh, he would like say stuff kind of like, well, um, young people, uh, I think also perhaps because he hadn't uh, direct personal experience of electoral politics uh, would say stuff like, um, well, um, young people um, say they can't get a job. Well, you know, they just need to like spit out the the pacifier and like get real. It's basically impossible to advance any kind of uh, sort of big picture discussion about the fact that like Italy has had long term structural mass unemployment or that it has uh, you know, not had economic growth in 20 years or that public investment has uh, collapsed. And partly because of the uh, European framework within, within which it operates, basically those kind of, um, those kind of choices are, are almost uh, choices about things like investment, public spending and so on, are almost uh, taken out of the hands of national government. So all that uh, remains to be argued over is a, is a series of kind of culture wars talking points. So you got into a lot there that I want to talk about, uh, including the uh, state of the left and the center left. But I guess first, in, in response to what you're describing with the conditions that especially young people in the country face, that sounds like a, a sort of supercharged version of what a lot of young people in the U.S. are currently uh, facing. And here in the U.S., we have this whole discourse that is familiar to many uh, millennials and Zoomers about, you know, despite all of these structural barriers that young people face towards uh, keeping their head above water in the American economy, there's all the discourse about, like, 
the reason that young people aren't getting ahead is because they're busy eating their avocado toast or whatever. These like they're they're busy frittering their money away on these petty things. Is there like is there an Italian equivalent uh, in the in the Italian uh, political and cultural discourse of like young Italians eating too much uh, avocado toast and that's why they're in the state that they're in? Silvia Berlusconi famously gave this kind of little rant about how like young people like they go out to the club and they party all night then they like commit some crime in the streets then they like come home and play video games and uh, (laughs) don't want to work uh so a busy uh busy day for for them you know i mentioned earlier the fact that like um about two-thirds of italian young people live with their parents so there was this kind of idea which is like um so il fatto quotidiano which is actually a quite progressive uh newspaper probably uh it's, it's of the center left let's say uh, that that ran a headline which was like uh, Italy. It's like we're the most like mummies boys in Europe. You know, like young Italian men. They don't want to do their own cooking, <laughs> so that's why they stay living with their mum because she'll like do it for them. But yeah, I mean, also, I mean, a, a big part of of the you know, if we're talking about young people finding work, I mean, firstly, the 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 majority of of new hires in Italy now are on uh, fixed term short term like you know contracts lasting a few months and it's become very normal uh also for like um the, the idea of like um if you really want to get a job you should agree to do a unpaid job because after all you're living with your parents anyway so what you should do is you get an unpaid job but which could last for like months or even like years in order to build up the experience to uh uh, to get real jobs. So, I mean, uh, while many European countries have things like minimum wages, which are like you know being eroded, but still there's some like basic rights. Uh, Italy doesn't have that. Like Italy doesn't have a minimum wage. Uh, Italy didn't until very recently have any kind of like um, unemployment uh, benefit, except like connected to the having had a job and lost it. So it's like you couldn't just like decide to move out of your parents and then claim a housing benefit and uh, unemployment benefit, as perhaps used to be true in some European countries. Um, and also, I mean, under the uh, Matteo Renzi's centre-left government in uh, 2015, I believe it was, um, the, the government actually introduced compulsory unpaid internships for all um, school children. <laughs> so, you know, not, not from like age five, but, but like still, you know, like <laughs> uh, for, for, for people in their, their latest Not teens. yet. So maybe they should, maybe that'll be the next step. But um, yeah, I think there's this kind of normalization of like uh, unpaid work and and any kind of employment opportunity is just purely something you should be thankful for. Um, Which, you know, I mean, I'm not sure how uh, shocking that will sound to many of your, uh, you know, American uh, listeners, perhaps. But like, you know, Italy is a country whose constitution like proclaims that like you know all uh, the workers wages should be enough to give them a dignified life for their family uh, the opening line says italy is a republic democratic republic founded on labor uh, there's loads of stuff in there about like um the state's job is to remove the economic and social barriers to the workers fully taking part in society so th- these kind of ideas of like work being something valueless or or you know that you don't necessarily deserve to be paid for um that's certainly like stepped up a notch uh, in the last like 20 or 30 years 
So let's talk about the Italian left and its decline. Perry Anderson, the famous leftist historian, uh, wrote an essay a few years ago where he argued that uh, what's sort of strange about the Italian case is that it had the largest communist party in Europe, as you mentioned, and yet it seems to have vanished without a trace almost. Uh, that might be slight overstatement, uh, but the the party, I mean, the party is, is gone, and uh, based on your book, it doesn't seem like uh, that that there are there are much remnants of the party that still play key roles in Italian politics of holding up some kind of uh, uh, you know standard bearer of love left politics in in the country. Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's uh, you know a lot of people would say, well, the old Communist Party has gone, but like the struggles still remain and the movements and so on, and that's totally untrue like the the general level of mobil social mobilization of any kind is uh, very low there are certainly some real uh, struggles going on uh, notably um like um my uh, like a migrant farm worker organizing in southern italy uh italy also has a quite strong um uh, feminist movement and the fight against domestic violence um but despite that what it really doesn't have is a kind of um interventions in normal sort of day-to-day public uh, debate and politics where there's any kind of representation of a like working class voice or like a socialist side um but yeah i mean i, I think the ma- the main structuring change is that the old communist party was a um a, almost a kind of society within a society the filmmaker and poet Pier Paolo Pasolini famously wrote this in an article in 1974 where he said like uh, you know the communist party is like an honest country in a dishonest country it's like a, an educated country in a uncivilized country this kind of thing uh, it's like a kind of um, because even though the party wasn't in national government uh, it was able to play a, a really central role in working class life as i said uh, so basically after the resistance, it became very strong. The anti-fascist resistance in World War II was the biggest party. Um, and it had two million members by the end of the 1940s. Uh, but it, after, it wasn't just like a big electoral force, uh, but it uh, it created things like consumer cooperatives. Um, the, the trade unions were basically a product of its uh, efforts. Um <clears throat> And it, it, but it did things like uh, even did things like kind of literacy classes and um, creating a kind of social life um, for for its uh, intended audience. Um, I've been art- writing an article for uh, Tribune, our uh, UK sister publication, about the, the local festivals it did. And like by the seventies, did like eight thousand of these for a year, uh, each year. And basically, it's like you would come to the local communist party. Uh, festival festa dell'unità and there'd just be like basically loads of like free entertainment and cut price alcohol and it was uh, not even that strongly sort of politicized in atmosphere but it was just like a way the party could insert itself into everyday life um and anything like that has like totally disappeared the party uh, in the early 90s turned towards liberalism 
Uh, and that wasn't just like a change of political agenda, but also the form of organization. Basically, it became less interested in having a kind of territorial presence and being rooted in working class life and became a much more a party of kind of like culture war, of pro-Europeanism, uh, and these kind of things. And uh, over time, um, it, it, uh, it certainly uh, grew detached, not just from the material interests of its working class base, uh, but uh, ceased to... Uh, to, to like incorporate them into its uh, activities. Um, so the centre left therefore became, as I've said, kind of just liberal and detached from working class material interest. But I think another part of the problem is that even among those who didn't go down that route, those who remained on the radical left, the people who founded Refondazione Comunista, the refoundation of the Communist Party, they had like uh, a couple of hundred thousand activists, which is like big by the standards of the European radical left, yeah, like a communist party with, with 200,000 members in the, in the early 90s, and it could get up to 10% of the vote. Um, but the problem is, is like, you know, that's not like the perspective of a party that's going to like lead a government. Um, and from very early on in, in its, its existence, uh, particularly after Silvio Berlusconi arrived on the scene in 1994, saying he was going to lead a new right and uh, to bring former fascists into government with him. As soon as that kind of uh, harsh and radicalised right wing appeared on the scene, um, the, the like, po political perspective of the radical left was greatly narrowed. Because basically, if I say there's a difference between like, a project of transformation and then a, then a politics of resistance, basically the difference is that it's one thing to have like a communist party which says, well, we're going to face lots of uh, struggles and obstacles, but basically we're, our aim and purpose is to bring about a socialist society. That's very different from like a party which is like, we are, we consider ourselves communists as our like identity and there's lots of nasty right wing threats and we're going to do everything we can to block them. Um, in the 1990s, the, the sort of new and neoliberal centre-left um, often used the, uh, the sort of threat or spectre of Berlusconi and his uh, sort of former fascist uh, allies as a kind of rallying call. Uh, so not unlike the resistance in the United States now, right? So it's like, it's like because Berlusconi is so bad and unprecedentedly bad and like a threat to democracy itself, Therefore, everyone has to join in the common front against Berlusconi and anyone who doesn't is basically betraying the left and helping the right. Uh, and Rifondazione, the, the party uh, we're trying to recreate the Communist Party, from the outset continually suffered splits over the question of whether to support even neoliberal um, governments in order to... Um, keep out Berlusconi. So actually, even in 1995, only a few months after Berlusconi's first election win, uh, he was removed from office by a pact between the uh, the Democrats of the left, like the, the former Communist Party, which had become like neoliberal centre-left, them together with the Lega, a hard right party, but also elements of Rifondazione, like the radical left. So you have this like very eclectic and unnatural alliance of forces from the radical left to like the hard right to keep out Berlusconi. Um, and I think like 
a, a problem of the you know it's it's not just like oh the party had like bad tactics or made bad choices like the 1990s were a time in which um the any kind of left wing politics was in disastrous disarray um because of, you know the neoliberal triumphalism that followed the end of the soviet union so not just like the old like Stalinist so-called communist parties, uh, but also social democracy was radically uh, abandoning the kind of agenda of social transformation. But that also affected the radical left, and I think the the, the kind of um, bringing into doubt of ideas like um, you know the centrality of like the state uh, as a as the like vehicle of social change really sort of paralysed. Uh, the radical left, um, because it was basically reduced to um, opposing like the latest nasty thing that was coming on the agenda, uh, rather than having like a vision of um, how it would bring about change. So things like class politics, the role of the state was in decline. And what was very much like on the up in the 1990s and the 2000s was these kind of ideas like um, horizontalism, and like, um, the way that communists should organize uh, should be like democratic so like everyone should have their say and we should avoid having like two like hierarchical or bureaucratic party processes and so on uh, so although Rifondazione kind of claimed the heritage of the Italian Communist Party actually it was very heavily covered colored right from the outset by kind of the ideas of things like um, autonomism uh, some of the stuff from the kind of anti-globalization movement, uh, like the rejection of violence, the rejection of structure, the rejection of hierarchy and the role of the state and all of these kind of things. Um, and I think basically that accelerated the decline of the radical left from like a political actor that had a vision of how it would bring about political change or set priorities for government. Uh, that was basically replaced with like a subculture that was obsessed with its own internal processes. Before we go on to the right, can you just say very briefly what it means for the parties of, of both the, the, the left, especially, but both the left and the right to be hollowed out? That's a term that comes up repeatedly in your book, the sort of hollowing out of the parties and the hollowing out of uh, Italian politics generally. What does that mean exactly? So I think there's two parallel uh, processes one of which is about the the kind of political choices that can be made and one of which is like how um how like the mass of people relate to politics so firstly uh looking at the kind of the kind of policy choices that can be made basically the effect of italy's entry into um the european uh, monetary system in the 1980s and then the european uh, union as it became after 1992 uh, was basically to transfer the key levers of decision making away from Italy and outside of any democratic control to unelected European institutions. Uh, so whereas until the start of the 1980s uh, Italy had like its own central bank uh, which was controlled by the elected and democratic government uh, by the time it uh, joined the euro uh, None of that existed. So the European Central Bank would make decisions on Italy's behalf. 
uh, and uh, basically just have to deal with the consequences. So uh, Christine Lagarde, who was the former head of the IMF, who became the uh, leader of the European Central Bank last year, uh, at the start of the coronavirus crisis, when you know Italians were wondering whether uh, the European Union uh, would be uh, helping uh, Italy to uh, sort of get through the moment of uh, economic crisis, uh, Lagarde publicly said, "Well, it's not our job; it's not the job of the European Central Bank to um, uh, to to save Italy." So the problem is, is like key levers of 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 policy are are um, transported away to the European level. We also saw this during the the early 2010s, uh, the sovereign debt crisis, where basically uh, the European Central Bank agreed to keep Italy afloat only on condition that it carry through uh, labour market reforms and privatisations. And these uh, the letters that uh, the uh, Italian government received from European Central Bank leaders, you know, they weren't written by like elected politicians or from the European Parliament or whatever. They're just like written by bank technocrats. And they're like, Italy is going to do this and this, or European Central Bank won't uh, keep Italy afloat. So, so yeah, so basically, the key economic decisions aren't made by the national government. And that's uh, a hollowing out of the field of political choice. Um, there's a there's a, a good quote by uh, Thomas uh, Piketty, where uh, he says basically if the um, if nation states aren't able to make decisions on anything other than their own immigration policy, then inevitably the centre of political discussion is going to be immigration policy because that's the one thing that the government can't control. Um, nonetheless. What he also adds is like there are some you know it's not like the Italian governments um, couldn't have done anything to alleviate the uh, the effects quite so they have any uh, freedom of maneuver with even within European rules right so there's, there's like a, a hot, there's hard limits on how much they can borrow and invest there are some things even like labor market policy directed from the European level but we shouldn't uh, let the Italian elites off the hook. They're often driving the, the 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 neoliberalism at the European level as well. But the other process that has also gone on at the same time is a demobilization of uh, kind of mass democratic politics. Um, so basically, Italy from the forties to the start of the nineteen nineties had mass parties um, with uh, um, local branches, uh, democratic congresses. Uh, millions of members and like a, a day-to-day life that was very uh, densely uh, wrapped up in um, in in day-to-day life in in society and not just uh, election time. Uh, and basically, uh, you know, this is a phenomenon we can see across Europe. Uh, in, in in fact, in a way, it's uh, actually making European democratic politics more similar to the United States. Where, like, you know, the voter might identify with the party, but it's not like you're a member of the of the Democrats or whatever. They're, they're just like election committees. Um, and so there's been a, a tendency in that direction in Italy. Uh, and indeed, I would argue uh, that Italy is a kind of uh, accelerated version of what we see elsewhere, because right from the early 1990s, um, you had uh, Berlusconi with his TV stations 
basically like do, he didn't need a party apparatus at all. Uh, he just used his own TV channels, which he owned, to market his own public image, and then selected all the candidates himself. And then we see uh, the Five Star Movement, the party uh, which rose at the end of the two thousands, where it's like they have like uh, an online platform, which is like a series of online referendums. But it's like the owners of the platform set the questions. So there's no like way in which the members can like uh, set the agenda or participate. They're just like voting yes or no on choices put to them. Uh, so I call this, uh, and you know, it's not original to me. It, it's people like uh, Peter Mayer. Uh, it's a hollowing out of the democratic process because basically the whole element of uh, participation from below is like wiped out. Right, and there are a number of morbid symptoms that uh, come out of that hollowing out process, right? I mean, uh, many of which I feel like we won't see for years and maybe even a decade or two to come. But uh, when politics is hollowed out that way, uh, people become extremely disenchanted with the uh the political process rightly so and they uh begin to they, you know they want a political alternative and they they are susceptible particularly in countries where there is no credible left alternative to uh some uh pretty uh horrifying grotesque uh, appeals especially from the right which brings us to uh, the italian right your book is subtitled how the populist right conquered italy so give us a sense of uh what what the lay of the land is in terms of the rights uh domination of uh italy in in ways that are um kind of strange i mean you mentioned like the five star movement for example uh, which is not a traditional party of the right in any way but is in sometimes in coalition with the right uh and uh because it sort of lacks any particular uh set of politics at all often ends finds itself drifting in rightward direction so just talk about that that conquering of, of italy by the the populist right what that look what, what that looks like i think the the there's a big uh, picture answer is connected to what we were just saying about the decline in political participation and the decline of the left um it's quite commonplace uh to um particularly as you know, we've seen after events like Brexit and Trump's victory, uh, looking also at, the, like, say, for, for instance, the rise of the far right in France, there's like this very uh, strong media narrative, which is like the working class voter abandoned by the left or offended by the left's like progressive cultural norms and things like, you know, uh, LGBT issues or migration, uh, that they're turning to the far right. Um, and basically what I argue is that this is, uh, well, firstly, that could be said to be uh, not really true in the American case. I mean, looking at Trump's overall electorate, they're far wealthier than the, the vote for the Democrats and the, and the working class element of his support is very small. Um, but uh, looking at the Italian case, um, the, the, the main reason why the right is strong is that the left's turnout has collapsed not that left-wing voters are directly moving to far-right parties. So, like, the, there's, there's some opinion polls we have which are, like, uh, taking how people voted in the 1987 general election, like when the Communist Party still existed and the Christian Democrats, uh, the, the, the main centrist and centre-right party, looking at how the vote has shifted since then. And what we see is that... Uh, 
only about one in 12 uh, form, uh, former communist voters is voting for uh, hard right parties like the Lega. They exist, but they're a small element of the overall picture. Uh, so the decisive thing in allowing uh, uh, hard right, radical right parties to win elections, even in former red, uh, so so-called red regions, former communist strongholds, actually the main thing that's going on is that the 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 centre left's uh, turnout has collapsed. Workers aren't bothering to vote for them, uh, whereas the uh, traditional uh, middle class conservative electorate has radicalized in italy there's a thing called the the center right which is actually three uh three parties berlusconi's party uh forza italia then the lega and then the uh, former fascists who are called fratelli d'italia uh, and basically like what we see is a very strong shift of voters like between these parties um and after um uh, Silvio Berlusconi's fraud conviction in 2013, where he was banned from public office, uh, a lot of his support went to the Lega, so like moved within the sort of right wing base, moved to a different party. Uh, in the 2018 election, the Lega was the biggest single right wing party, and that gave it a platform with which it very quickly um, swallowed up a lot of other um, middle class traditional right wing support. In fact, my analysis actually quite strongly foregrounds um, quite a kind of chance re- reasons uh, why uh, the support moves in between the right wing parties. In fact, now the Lega is on a downward curve and the, uh, the post fascists, Fratelli d'Italia, uh, are on the up. Uh, voters' party allegiances are very fickle. Uh, these parties are like uh, election campaign machines. Um, and yeah, so so it's easy for for voters to move between uh, the one right wing party and another. Uh, however, at the same time, the overall dynamic is uh, is a strengthening of the hard right's preferred themes of political discussion, and in particular, uh, immigration and national identity. Um, and that was a theme which uh, Matteo Salvini, as a Lega leader, uh, effectively mobilised over the last uh, couple of years. Uh, and which now the post-fascists are kind of stealing the the lead from him. Uh, at the same time, even looking at the 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 right, looking at the obsessive focus on immigration, the attempt to rehabilitate the historic fascist regime, and these kind of things that may seem like a a, a very strong radicalization of the right, um, there's also uh, clear limits on how far that that. Uh, that their sort of radicalism goes, particularly when we look at um, uh, economic policies, uh, because I think it's uh, it's there's this kind of discussion about welfare chauvinism, the idea that like far right parties sort of offer workers protection at the same time as excluding migrants. So you know, like as if they like defend the interests of like white native born Italian workers and not foreigners, like the idea that the right-wing parties are not also um, neoliberals, um, serves to, to muddy the waters. Um, the Lega, uh, as well as uh, Berlusconi's party, is a party of sharp tax cuts and of cuts in public spending. 
Um, it's just that the centre-left doesn't want to fight them on that terrain and is itself sort of happy to fight over cultural issues in which, uh, you know, all they, all they basically do is claim to be more pro-European and less uh, anti-migrant. While the, uh, a lot of Italian politics rotates around themes of like national identity and immigration and so on, it's not like these hard-right parties actually want to take Italy out of the EU or out of the Eurozone. Basically, they want to stage uh, some kind of theatrical clashes with Brussels and be seen to be standing up for Italy in a way the liberal centrists won't. Uh, but um, it, it, as we saw with the recent uh, experience of the Lega and Five Star in government together, uh, it uh, translates into very little in practice. They're able to mobilise uh, part of the uh, electorate's disappointment with the European Union um, and, and act as a kind of voice for that, uh, yet at the same time they, they don't want to uh, mount any kind of firm uh, break because they, they, they fear what the consequences uh, of leaving the Eurozone would be, uh, particularly when we look at things like how it would affect uh, savers and uh, businesses and so on. So what does that mean for the future of the Italian right? Because obviously we saw something similar take place in the United Kingdom that culminated in the Brexit vote. Uh, but in Italy, you have simultaneously widespread uh, anger at the European institutions, yet no real prospect for any kind of uh, Italian exit anytime soon. There has been a, a very real shift because in the uh, 1990s, um, the idea that Europe was the future for Italy, that the EU would basically solve all of its ills, make it a sort of modern, normal country, as, as, some, as uh, some would put it, um, that was almost unanimously shared across the political spectrum. Uh, in fact, in the in the 1990s, uh, the Lega, which is now often presented as a strongly uh, Eurosceptic party, um, its uh, line in the 1990s under its original leader, Umberto Bossi, was actually more like um, northern Italians are real Europeans and northern Italy works, so should be allowed to join the Euro even if the, even if the south of Italy is excluded. Like basically, we should have an independent northern Italy to join the the the, the sort of European project, and like you know, screw the South Italians because they're too lazy and corrupt and, and so on. Um, but um, that that argument was was basically uh, cast aside when Italy did join the Euro in uh, nineteen ninety nine uh, as a whole. Um, but I mean, over time, the you know while there was something like ninety percent public support for Italy joining the euro um, over time that enthusiasm and that that belief that that Europe represented like competence and progress uh, has collapsed because uh, during Italy's time in the in the eurozone it's actually got uh, poorer uh, not only have like working class people got poorer but even like overall economic growth has uh, uh, flatlined so so the GDP is actually lower um, and uh, there's lots of different reasons why different groups of Italians might be uh, unhappy with the European Union and Eurozone. Um, you know, whether that's like um, it, uh, exporters facing price competition or whether it's like the victims of austerity 
Uh, also, of course, there's factors which are more like national, nationalist or related to immigration and so, and so on, especially after Europe's very slow uh, um, response to the coronavirus crisis. Um, now, opinion polls tell us that something like two thirds of Italians uh, say that they have no faith in the European Union. Um, yet, there's no uh, polling that suggests that most Italians would actually want to leave the European Union, because they're two very different things. One is uh, disappointment at the kind of hopes that were raised in the EU and the things that it said it was meant to do. Then it's quite another to have a project to take Italy out of the Eurozone and return it to its own currency. Um, part of the reason for that is that uh, Italy has an uh, enormous uh, public debt, which combined with its very poor or indeed zero economic growth, um, means that the debt is basically uh, unpayable. So the, the public debt of Italy is, um, or was before coronavirus, about 135% of GDP. There's about 40,000 euros public debt for every Italian. Um, and um, basically, like the, I, I describe it in the book, it's like uh, Italy is both kind of uh, too big to fail and too big to save. In the sense that the European Union, the Eurozone authorities, are never going to cancel that debt. Italy is the third biggest economy in the Eurozone. Were the Eurozone to cancel its debt, that would cause chaos in terms of the other countries of the European periphery who would all want similar treatment. Um, yet at the same time, uh, the European authorities don't want Italy to go bankrupt um, so what they tend to do is uh, have a there's a kind of constant process of austerity reforms in exchange for short bursts of liquidity. So Italy is kind of constantly kind of kept just on the brink of uh, bankruptcy, but it never actually happens. Um, whereas uh, if uh, a uh, an Italian government did want to leave the eurozone, uh, it would certainly be bankrupted. Because it has two point five trillion of euros of debt, and there's no, you know, it wouldn't be able to uh, request support from the European Central Bank. Uh, its currency would probably uh, collapse uh, very quickly, uh, and it would have to 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 make uh, you know, massive devaluations. Um, that would destroy um, people's savings. Which, of course, you know, savers are a minority of the population, but they're more likely to be aligned to to the Lega, um, and could have uh, all sorts of chaotic and unpredictable consequences for Italian business, uh, particularly exporters. And in some of the Lega's own core heartlands of support, uh, particularly Veneto in the northeast of Italy, are very well integrated into the German economy. So I think it's very unlikely that, that the Lega in particular would want to lead a, a, a split. Uh, at times, it and Five Star have both said, you know, there should eventually be a referendum. When they were in national government together, they made absolutely no steps in that direction and had no interest in talking about it because they don't want it to happen. Uh, in fact, although, as I say, about two thirds of Italians say they have no faith in the uh, Eurozone or the European Union, rather, sorry. Um, there, there aren't actually any parties represented in Parliament which call for Italexit. Uh, one expelled five-star MP, uh, sorry, one expelled five-star senator has just set up a party called Italexit. So we'll see how he does. Uh, but uh, I think uh, 
the 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 problem is is that basically you don't really have a, a coalition of like class interests, a coalition of people with shared political identity who all want to leave for the same reason. So I think it's difficult to imagine a, a like a coherent program for exit that would be able to have majority public support. Uh, the comparison with Britain is telling because Britain was never in the Eurozone, was always sort of half in, half out, certainly never had the same kind of identification with the European project as, as most Italians did you know, in the 90s. Um, but I think the most important thing is because it wasn't in the Eurozone, it could leave much more easily. And it, it has been very difficult for the UK to leave the European Union. The negotiations on the future trade arrangements and so on are still ongoing. Uh, but the fact that I think it's impossible for Italy to leave without uh, bankruptcy. Now, one can argue you know, going bankrupt isn't the end of the world. Uh, Argentina, for instance, has had several uh, bankruptcies uh, which have basically allowed it to like abandon loads of debt and then it's been able to start borrowing again soon enough. But it doesn't strike me as likely that the uh, that, that, kind of, uh, that kind of project um, sits well with the kind of expectations of most Italians, the way they see their state's uh, role in the international pecking order. And uh, I think the, 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 the word and the, the like threat of bankruptcy sounds uh, too bad for any uh, government to realistically uh, confront. So I think it's unlikely to, to happen. So to conclude here, we have a country that is increasingly immiserated economically and socially, especially by the European institutions, but we have no immediate or even the probably medium or long-term prospects for it uh, leaving the European institutions like the Eurozone anytime soon. We have uh, a populist right that has uh, dominated the, the country's politics in recent years. We have a rising xenophobia, which we haven't even talked about uh, in depth, which is uh, very central to uh, the, that right-wing politics in, in the country. We have a uh, completely uh, hollowed out and, and, and weakened and deracinated left in the country that despite having the largest communist party in Europe uh, is now sort of moving towards the American Democratic Party style of uh, doing uh, left wing with heavy air quotes politics. Uh, and uh, it's just, yeah, there's not, this, this is a very, this is a very bleak uh picture that is being painted of Italy and it is one that you say in the book is not one that is somehow uh, unique to Italy. I mean obviously there are particularities of the Italian case like there are particularities of any case uh, but but this really is a, a, a vision that we may be uh, seeing uh, you know uh, similarities of in other countries throughout Europe and other countries throughout the world in the near future. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's uh, useful for the uh, marketing purposes of my book to say this isn't just this like weird outlier country that I'm interested in, but uh, presents a vision of the future uh, for for everywhere. But I, I think it's uh, borne out in reality because, it, in a way, it's like a extreme uh, concentration of trends we do indeed see everywhere, which is where the sort of uh, social democratic and labor parties. Which, ha which were built on uh, largely working class coalitions of support, 
but with some middle class and some more liberal elements. You know, over time in most countries, their base of support, their the, the material interests they defend, and the things that they're mo- the kind of issues they're most willing to talk about have over time shifted from the working class or and socialist vision to a liberal one focused on culture wars uh, issues Um, and in Italy because the communist party uh, dissolved itself in 1991 and there was a kind of conscious and very sudden move to the the liberal center by its former leaders there it just happened sort of quicker and more dramatically I mean, I wouldn't like to like speculate that you know, in terms of like specific things like uh, you know Italy's lack of economic growth and the 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 role of debt in its economy, you know, that's not purely universal, and not all European and eurozone countries um, experience the dynamics of the eurozone in the same way. Uh, Italy's high public debt and vulnerability to uh, to pressure from European authorities and from the from the markets on its um, on its uh, sovereign debt mean that it has been a particular victim of Brussels imposed austerity in a way that wouldn't be true of of countries like uh, Germany, for instance, where the eurozone uh, and the existence of a common European currency actually you know has has very different effects. For example, in making its uh, exports relatively less expensive than they might be otherwise. Uh, for, for instance. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the uh, the combination of the deracination of the of the left uh, and uh, the radicalization of the right are uh, very far from specific to uh, to Italy. Um, I mean, on the um, on the we should uh, talk about the politics of of race and immigration. Um, I mean, I think it's it, what's happening in Italy. Uh, can't simply be, uh, you know, in if you look at like the way that the politics of immigration and race play out in, for instance, uh, Britain or the United States, it's very different to Italy, particularly in the sense that um, in Italy there's a very weak tradition of anti-racist uh, movements. Before, like um, the last thirty or forty years the number of uh, non-white people born in Italy is very low. So, uh, you know, there's not like um, millions strong ethnic minority communities established in Italy in the way that's true of uh, even France uh, or the United Kingdom, for instance. Um, so the the level of anti-racist politics uh, is very low, and uh, even uh, kind of across the the mainstream political spectrum, the it's very common to see uh, like black people in general as sort of automatically non-Italian. Uh, so you know that kind of uh, situation is is particularly uh, bad, and uh, in even as the uh, the Lega and uh, other far right parties try and um, focus political debate. When I say the neoliberal centre-left wants to fight the far right on culture wars issues, I'm not using that as a euphemism to say, to talk about racism or, or immigration. 
like the neoliberal centre left in Italy has an extremely poor record of standing up for migrants and ethnic minorities. The last uh, centre left government uh, failed to enact legislation that would uh, ensure that anyone born in Italy could become an Italian citizen. The general, um, the, the the kind of discussion on uh, Europeanness uh, shouldn't be. Um, taken for a kind of cipher for for race that's an element of it um, but uh, but yeah I mean I think that the anti-racist forces and you know like if we talk about the politics of resistance then you know one thing that that is uh, the best about that politics in Italy is the kind of solidarity with um, solidarity with refugees uh, a political anti-racism um, and uh, you know, and, and also, you know, the, in fact, uh, I think absolutely without doubt, the most impressive single uh, representative of the uh, Italian left or labor movement now, uh, Abu Bakr Sumoro, uh, he's like a union organizer organizing um, basically sub Saharan migrants working in uh, farms in southern and central Italy. Um, so you know that's uh, and those uh, workers uh, have in recent years uh, acquired a certain visibility uh, on the national political stage and that kind of organizing um, shows the way in which the politics of um, anti-racism and solidarity with migrants can indeed be part of revitalizing the labor movement and are not separate from it. But that said, at the same time, I'd, I'd maintain what I said before, which is that the basic problem is that it's very hard in Italy to have any kind of left that has a, a broad vision of, of social change that manages to to like change the terms of political debate. Uh, if you think, you know, even in his own limited and reformist way, you know, the way that Bernie Sanders campaigns brought onto the political agenda or more central onto the political agenda, uh, stuff like Medicare for all. It's hard to imagine anything analogous in Italy, uh, which isn't just sort of um, responses to to the latest uh, to the latest moment of of crisis, the latest scandal or whatever. That kind of uh, reformist left with a broad vision of the economy, uh, with a vision of like how you would unite the mass of the population, the mass of the working class population. That's just something really absent, and that's why uh, I uh, have very pessimistic uh, conclusions about uh, the way Italian politics is likely to go. I'm trying to think of a good marketing slogan for your book. Maybe you could adapt Orwell and say something like, if you want a vision of the future, imagine the the boot of Italy stamping on a global face forever. I don't know. But you can workshop that a little bit, see what you can come up with. Come up with. That sounds more like a promise for Ital- Italian domination of the rest of the world. But uh, <laughs> we can hope when it leaves the EU, finally. <laughs> Uh, David, thanks so much. Congrats on the book. It's an excellent uh, book. People can v- buy it at uh, versobooks.com. Uh, and, you know, it's uh, you, you clock in, I believe, at just under uh, 200 pages, which is exactly the length that I think all books should be written at. So uh, good job on, on that front. <laughs> <laughs> thanks.